Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, Daniel chapters 5 and 6. We're going to bring Daniel chapter 5 to a close. Move on into chapter 6 today. Now we've covered up to verse 24 in chapter 5 and what we've learned is that somewhat recent archaeological finds have cleared up some issues regarding the king of Babylon who is the main character of this chapter. First, this king, Belshazzar, existed, which is which as early as 30 years ago, that was highly disputed. And second, this king's father was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was seldom at home in Babel to rule. Rather, because he was a career military man, before he was elevated to the throne, he led military excursions to faraway places with the idea to both secure his empire's borders and to further expand Babylon's influence. And third, there was some type of arrangement between Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar that made Belshazzar the ruler in his father's stead during those long absences that were several years at a time. And while there's no way to definitively prove it, the fact that the Babylonian, Babylonian chronicles, actual records of the Babylonian kingdom that have been unearthed and translated, those records speak of Belshazzar appointing high government officials to their offices and then Nabonidus using those same officials when he was home and sitting on his throne. This makes clear that Belshazzar was the chief administrator of the empire except when his father was in town. So it's hard to think of the ruling arrangement between Nabonidus and son anything other than a co-regency or something closely resembling it. Thus when Daniel speaks of Belshazzar as the king, common sense asks what else would he be called? He was sitting on the throne, ruling over the kingdom, and out of the 17 years that Nabonidus is said to have ruled, he was gone at least 12 or 13 years of that time. Meaning that Belshazzar was in full control for most of those 17 years. This was the man, Belshazzar, whom Daniel dealt with on a regular basis, not Nabonidus. Then we have the matter of the mysterious writing appearing upon the wall during a great banquet given by Belshazzar in honor of himself. Belshazzar, drunk and in a frivolous mood, broke with all caution, all custom, and he ordered that the gold and silver Jerusalem temple ritual goblets be brought to him so that he and his guests could drink wine from them and make toasts to their gods. Their mocking of Jehovah is the catalyst for the Lord shattering their party atmosphere as a ghostly hand and fingers appeared in front of everyone present and wrote upon a white plastered wall of the palace. But the words themselves were unintelligible. 
So the king, in a panic, literally screamed for his Chaldean seers to come and tell him what the writing said. They couldn't. So we're told that a queen entered the room and advised Belshazzar to call upon Daniel as he had been so accurate in service to the Babylonian patriarch Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel comes. He takes a look at the writing and says, yes, he can interpret it and he will tell the king what it means. But first, he takes this king down a peg by telling him that as great as Nebuchadnezzar had been, this king he was standing before was just a pretender. But even worse, even though Nebuchadnezzar wasn't without transgression upon the God of Israel. He had shown respect and wisdom and had responded on a number of occasions to the God Most High. Enough that Jehovah forgave and even honored Nebuchadnezzar and allowed him to rule over Babylon for 43 years. But the story would be different for Belshazzar. The Lord had already judged him. The matter was settled. There would be no offer to repent and change. No chance to honor God and be forgiven. Rather, the arrogance of defiling those ritual vessels of the Lord's house that had been consecrated to honor the God of Israel exclusively showed that Belshazzar was beyond redemption. And so his earthly and eternal fate were sealed at that moment. Now we closed with a reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, that makes it abundantly plain that like for Belshazzar, there is a spiritual line that a person can cross that disqualifies them from membership in the kingdom of God. Any offer of divine grace is rescinded. No church, no pope, no pastor, no rabbi decides where that line is. And only the Lord judges when the line's been crossed. It doesn't matter that someone goes forward publicly and confesses and prays the sinner's prayer. It doesn't matter that a person goes to a church or a synagogue regularly or even leads the proceedings. It doesn't matter that a person has mastered the language of Christianese and runs around calling upon the name of Jesus. If that person keeps on willfully sinning, behaving arrogantly towards the Lord and denying the truth of God's word, there is no atonement by Christ's blood or by the blood of any animal as a substitute for their sins. And there is no other kind of atonement that's available to call upon. The fires of hell are the resting place of that person. Hard message. Let's reread the final few verses of Daniel chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it will be page 1107. We're going to read from 24 to the end. So this is Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 1107. This is why he sent the hand to write this inscription. 
And the inscription says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. This is what it means. Mene. God has counted up your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You are weighed on the balance scale and you come up short. Peres. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the order, and they clothed Daniel in royal purple, put a gold chain around his neck, and proclaimed of him that he was to be one of the three men ruling the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Costim, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. Daniel makes it clear to Belshazzar, You have not glorified the Lord, so the words written on the wall, those are your epitaph. It's interesting how publicly this was happening. 1,000 high-ranking officials and family members, aristocrats, are witnessing God's oracle of judgment upon their king. No one will be able to deny that what Daniel says the writings mean or are accurate or that when God pronounces judgment, there's no escape. The words were, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. But why couldn't the king's Chaldean seers at least identify the words if not what they meant? We're not told. So there are a number of speculations about that. One one is that the writing was in Hebrew, so only a Jew would know it. But even if the Chaldeans didn't know Hebrew, they easily would have recognized that the letters were Hebrew. Some rabbis have suggested that each word was written vertically instead of horizontally, and since they were all consonants, it would have been very confusing. Another, I think, more likely possibility is that these weren't alphabet characters at all that were being used and depicted by just about every illustration I've ever seen for this story. But rather, they were what we would call ideograms. That is, they were non-standard symbols. But no matter the case... The purpose was not just to cause anxiety and panic, but they were to be read. They were to be interpreted. Mene means numbered. Therefore, says Daniel, the number of days of your kingdom, the Babylonian Empire, has been counted as full. Now they come to an end. Tekel means weighed. The mental picture ought to be of a balance scale, or better, the scales of God's justice. And when Belshazzar is set upon those scales, he comes up short of righteousness. The final word is u-farsin, and it's actually two words. The u means and. Farsin is a plural word, grammatically anyway, and it means Persians. And where Daniel says the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, some commentators have incorrectly said this means the kingdom will effectively be cut in half with half of it going to the Medes and the other half going to the Persians. But what it means, however, is that the kingdom will be dissolved. It will be divided away from the Babylonian dynasty and turned over to the Medes and Persians.
Well, it's fascinating because verse 29 tells us that upon hearing Daniel, the king gave to Daniel the promised rewards of a purple garment signifying a royal position and the gold chain of authority and he proclaimed that Daniel would be one of the three men who would administrate the Babylonian Empire. Apparently because Daniel's unerring deciphering of dreams and and visions in the past, Belshazzar found no reason not to take Daniel at his word. He believed him. He believed. He accepted that Babylon's time was up and therefore his own time was up. This chapter ends with the words that that very night Belshazzar was killed. We're given no clue as to whom or what killed him. But Babylonian records strongly imply that when the Persians and the Medes attacked Babylon, Belshazzar was left to lead the city's defenses and he died in that effort. Let's move on to Daniel chapter 6. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, page 1107 again. Daniel chapter 6. The kingdom passed to Daryavesh the Mede when he was about 62 years old. Daryavesh decided to set over the kingdom 120 viceroys to rule throughout the entire kingdom with three chiefs over them, of whom Daniel was one, so that these viceroys could be responsible to them and so that the king's interests would be safeguarded. But because an extraordinary spirit was in this Daniel, he so distinguished himself above the other chiefs and viceroys that the king considered putting him in charge of the whole kingdom. The other chiefs and the viceroys tried to find a cause for complaint against Daniel in order to, uh, in regard to how he performed his governing duties, but they could find nothing to complain about, no fault. On the contrary, because he was so faithful, not a single instance of negligence or faulty administration could be found. Then these men said, we're not going to find any cause for complaint against this Daniel unless we find something against him in regard to the law of his God. So these chiefs and viceroys descended on the king and they said to him, King Daryavesh, live forever. All the chiefs of the kingdom, along with the prefects and viceroys and advisors and governors have met and agreed that the king should issue a decree putting in force the following law. Whoever makes a request of any god or man during the next 30 days except of you, your majesty, is to be thrown into the lion pit. Now, Your Majesty, issue this decree over your signature so that it cannot be revoked as required by the law of the Medes and Persians, which is itself irrevocable. So King Daryavesh signed the document and the decree became law. And on learning that the document had been signed, Daniel went home. The windows of his upstairs room were open in the direction of Jerusalem. And there he kneeled down three times a day and prayed, giving thanks before his God, just as he had been doing before. Then these men descended on Daniel and found him making requests and pleading before his God, so they went to remind the king of his royal decree. Didn't you sign a law prohibiting anyone from making requests of any God or man within 30 days except yourself, your majesty, on pain of being thrown into the lion pit? And the king answered, yes, that is true. 
as required by the law of the Medes and Persians, which itself is irrevocable. They replied to the king that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, respects neither you, your majesty, nor the decree you signed. Instead, he continues praying three times a day. And when the king heard this report, he was very upset. He determined to save Daniel. And he worked until sunset to find a way to rescue him. But these men descended on the king and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or edict once issued by the king can be revoked. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion pit. The king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you are always serving, will save you. A stone was brought to block the opening of the pit and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so that nothing concerning Daniel could be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night fasting and refusing to be entertained as sleep eluded him. Early in the morning the king got up and hurried to the lion pit. And on approaching the pit where Daniel was the king cried in a pained voice to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you are always serving been able to save you from the lions? Then Daniel answered the king, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so they haven't hurt me. This is because before him I was found innocent. And also I have done no harm to you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. And he ordered Daniel to be taken up from the pit. So Daniel was taken up from the pit and he was found to be completely unharmed because he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave an order. And they brought those men who had accused Daniel and threw them into the lion pit. Them, their children, and their wives. And before they even reached the bottom of the pit, the lions had them in their control and broke all their bones to pieces. King Daryavesh wrote all the peoples, nations, and languages living anywhere on earth. Shalom, uh, Shalom Rav, abundant peace. I herewith issue a decree that everywhere in my kingdom people are to tremble, to be in awe of the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rulership will last till the end. He saves, rescues, does signs and wonders both in heaven and on earth. He delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Daryavesh and also during the reign of Koresh, the Persian. Well, just as the first few words to open chapter 5 created a lot of controversy, so it is with the opening words of chapter 6. The issue is Daryavesh, Darius, the Mede. And it is that many scholars claim that this is another fictional character. And that all other records show that it was not Darius the Mede, but rather Cyrus the Persian who conquered Babylon. Some well-meaning Christian commentators have tried to harmonize this discrepancy by saying that these were the same person, just going by two different names in two different languages. Now we're going to do our best to untangle this, just as we did with the issue of Belshazzar and Nabonidus. But first it's important to know 
that even the several Babylonian and Persian records discovered aren't consistent regarding Darius, Cyrus, or the conquering of Babylon. So this drumbeat of accusation by liberal Bible critics that the Bible doesn't harmonize with Babylonian and Persian accounts and therefore it's the Bible that's in error is just dishonest. The handful of Babylonian and Persian accounts that address this matter don't even harmonize among themselves. However, before we address that, let's pause to reflect. Let's, Let's stop and get a little perspective to consider what we've seen illustrated over these past 15 weeks of studying Daniel. So look up from your Bibles, if you would, please, and just look towards me. The Lord told the kingdom of Judah and Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years. And that was because of their idolatrous and rebellious sins. And as of the beginning of chapter 6, which we just started, 68 of those years have now passed. Chapters 1 through 5 then deal historically with all but the final two years of the Babylonian captivity or exile. So in the remaining seven chapters, beginning with chapter 6, we're going to be dealing with a mere 24-month time span. Further, chapter 6 will bring to a conclusion what we can rightfully call the historical portion of Daniel. That is, it's the portion of the book that explains the general history of the Jews in exile in Babylon. What follows, starting in chapter 7, will be mostly prophetic. And here's what must be Daniel's main point in these first six historical chapters and something we're meant to absorb very deeply into our souls. The God of Israel is a God of awesome miracles and wonders. He is a sovereign God who is no respecter of persons. He will work in cooperation with a foreign power We've seen this pattern before. Even elevating a pagan king to be the most powerful man the world has ever known in order to achieve his purposes. This cooperation with Babylon was meant not, uh, to not only subjugate Judah as a means of punishment for their gross transgressions against him, but ironically to also arrange the circumstances for Judah's eventual deliverance. This is the end times pattern as well. When the Antichrist, who represents the entire Gentile world, will be raised up in cooperation with God to punish Israel once again, but ironically will also be used to bring about redemption. Yet there's another part to this lesson of Daniel that is illustrated for us. And I see it primarily as Calvin saw it. It is that we are shown that the only way that we can truly know God is by means of a pure heart 
meaning a pure mind. And that heart must be Christ-purified. Because a self-purification to the needed level is humanly unattainable. If we are ever going to be given the slightest spiritual insight into the great holy mysteries that are spoken of in Scripture, including those we have read about in the book of Daniel, we must first have our minds washed clean by living water. Those who write commentaries about Daniel but who haven't been purified by Messiah's work on the cross, of course see it as naturalistic and mythical because they have no means to comprehend the awesome spiritual insights that that, that burst forth from these verses. But even then, true believers will only apprehend the tiniest fraction of that which we'll finally know when we meet God face to face in eternity. So we have no place for pride or arrogance because we are part of God's elect. Thus we learn that while faith will not be the ongoing requirement when we're living in heaven and then with God on a remade earth, on the other hand, faith is will always be our prerequisite to knowing God to being admitted into heaven and winning the privilege of seeing God face to face when we're finally in heaven living with the Lord the purpose the purpose for our faith on earth will have been fulfilled but for the time that we're in this present world it's with troubles that we live because this is after all the world it's not heaven so ours must be a walk of faith more than sight since there's so little that we who presently live in a physical world of four finite dimensions can ever hope to know about an eternal God who lives in a limitless spiritual dimension. This is why believers who live long enough eventually learn that our life's journey will follow the pathways upon glorious mountaintops with great victories that inevitably descend into deep valleys of defeats and sorrows and then back up again. This bumpy journey is normal. In fact, it's necessary. Because just as we must exercise our muscles by straining against resistance to gain physical strength and stamina, we must exercise our souls against the heavy weight of life's great moral challenges to bring spiritual vitality, spiritual maturity and growth. This is how the Lord refines us and molds us and reshapes us. Only as we pass by those many mile markers of our journey do we begin to perceive the larger and the finer things that the Lord has endeavored to teach us all those years. Our fears finally give way to perseverance in our faith. Our doubts 
they give way to confidence in God's promises and in His assurances. As my father used to say to me, if we'll allow it, our experiences eventually lead us to relax in the Lord. We see all of these characteristics in the persons of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see the resistance they face in Nebuchadnezzar and the kings who followed him. These four Jews, they weren't without emotions and concerns, but there was no anxiety, no panic present. They weren't perfect, but they allowed themselves to be perfected by the hand of God through their earthly testing and trials. So we learn that our difficulties, our challenges here on earth are not abnormal. They're needed. They're to be expected. Let's talk now about King Darius the Mede who is said in verse 1 of chapter 6 to have taken over the kingdom, meaning the Babylonian kingdom, at the age of 62. Now first let me mention that some some Bible versions have placed this opening verse, like it is in our complete Jewish Bibles, as the final verse of chapter 5. I think that's incorrect, but it, it doesn't really harm the text. But the next thing to notice is the careful wording of the passage that the kingdom passed to Darius. In other words, Darius is not said to have conquered the Babylonians. Rather, in some kind of unspoken political process, he was entrusted with the throne. In fact, in chapter 9, the opening words of verse 1 say, In the first year of Daryavesh, Darius, the son of Achashverosh, a Mede by birth who was made king over the Kostim, the Chaldeans. So the theme throughout Daniel regarding Darius is that he didn't become king by taking the throne away from somebody or by conquering Babylon. Rather, it was given to him. Somebody assigned the throne to him. But who? Why? The next issue regarding Darius is that for the longest time there was found no reference to a king called Darius among Babylonian, Median, or Persian documents. Thus, as typical, the Bible critical school of commentators assumed that he was either a completely made up character by the author of Daniel or the author got names mixed up. And he put the wrong person at the wrong time in history. And since the issue of Darius is a serious one, and to this day it's controversial, we're going to spend a little bit of time with it so that you can amaze and dazzle your friends. Not really. It's so that you can remain confident in the integrity of the book of Daniel without having to fall back to merely believing what you want to believe. So stay with me. This is a little bit complicated, but it's also quite fascinating. And to get started, I must first tell you that in Daniel chapter 10, 
the verse speaks of King Koresh, King Cyrus, who follows King Darius to the throne of the former Babylonian Empire. Is there a relationship between these two men? Another issue is that the ancient Babylonian, Median, and Persian records, as well as later Greek records of famous historians, famous historians such as Herodotus, who lived about 75 years after the Daniel chapter 6 events, and Xenophon of Athens, who lived a bit more than a century after the events of Daniel chapter 6, don't find a full consensus on the succession of kings after Nebuchadnezzar, and especially the succession of Median and Persian kings after Babylon fell into their hands. However, some archaeological findings have shed some light on the matter, that while not clearing everything up, it helps substantially. In the northwest corner of Iran, in the province of Kermanshah, is a place along an ancient roadway that connected Babylon with Media, a place called Mount Behistun. And chiseled into that mountain, you see it here on the slide, is a 50-foot high, 70-foot wide bas relief that includes an inscription that has added some fascinating insight into the history of the Medes and Persians. And here is a translation of that inscription. Thus speaks Darius the king. My father was Histaspes. The father of Histaspes was Arshamah. The father of Arshamah was Ariamna. The father of Ariamna was Sispis. The father of Sispis was Achaemenes. Now, what makes this find so important is that it speaks of King Darius, a man the critical Bible scholars say didn't exist especially in Daniel chapter 6, and then gives what is claimed to be his ancestral history. But then, in an equally as ancient uh, find called the Cyrus Cylinder, we find this record written upon it that translates like this. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, the king of Babylon, king of the land of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters, son of Cambyses, great king, king of the city of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, great king, king of the city of Anshan, great grandson of Sispis, great king, king of the city of Anshan. There are two Cyruses spoken of here. Cyrus the first and Cyrus the second. Cyrus the second is the king who's mentioned here in Daniel chapter 10 and he's better known as Cyrus the Great. Why is this discovered record important? Because it verifies a couple of things. It verifies that a Persian king named Cyrus ruled over Babylon and that the patriarch of his family line is a fellow named Sispis. Just as Darius the king in the Mount Behistun inscription is also supposed to be in the family line of Sispis. So, King Darius and King Cyrus are related. Each one 
owing their royal blood to King Sispis. Bible critics who don't want there to be a Darius and don't want there to be a close relationship between the Medes and the Persians because it messes up their agenda go so far as to say Darius, well that was just an alternate name for Cyrus since they both came from Sispis. It's just that the family tree in between Sispis and Darius was an heir. Notice how everything no matter the source, no matter how ancient, must be an error if it doesn't fit the Bible critical scenario that Daniel is a fictitious legend that was written far later in coded language meant to reference Antiochus Epiphanes. But what makes these ancient records even more fascinating is that the line of Darius is the line of the kings of the Medes, of Media. And the line of Cyrus is the line of the kings of Persia. Therefore, we begin to understand this close relationship between the kingdom of Media and the kingdom of Persia. They had a common patriarch, Sispis. It's not unlike the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. They both came from a common father, Jacob. So despite their differences that at times even spilled over into open warfare, they always held a certain bond between them due to a long common family history that each of them clung to. So, what the Cyrus Cylinder also informs us is this. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, king of Babylon. In other words, Cyrus claims to be the king of Babylon. And other records such as those from Josephus, Herodotus, Xenophon, all claimed that it was Cyrus the Great who conquered Babylon. Nowhere is it claimed that Darius the Mede conquered Babylon. And neither does Daniel make that claim. Even though Bible critical scholars just twist the plain meaning of the text to say that the Bible does say that. So then, how does this square with the Daniel chapter 6 verse 1 claim that Darius the Mede became the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians? Simple. It was indeed Cyrus the Great, who was known as a great warrior leader, who attacked and conquered Babylon. But for his own good reasons, no doubt for some kind of political expediency, he appointed this 62-year-old Mede named Darius as the caretaker king over Babylon while Cyrus attended to other matters. Chaldea was the district where the capital of Babylon, the city of Babel, was located. Now remember, the book of Daniel makes it clear that Darius did not conquer Babylon. Rather, the throne was given to him. The throne just passed to him. It was given to him by someone. That someone was Cyrus the Great. And then in a few years, Cyrus removed Darius and sat on the throne of what was the Babylonian Empire, but now is the Media Persian Empire himself. The puzzle pieces seem to have fallen together logically, historically, and biblically. So, with this prophesied succession of empires 
that were symbolized back in Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue of the four metals. If we keep that in mind, we now see that the head of gold that is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is now conquered and gone. The transition of the Babylonian Empire into the possession of the silver arms and chest of the Jean statue that is the media Persians has occurred. And Daniel 6 plainly shows that that silver uh, silver arms and chest are the Medes and the Persians. And this is further verified by ancient Median and Persian records and inscriptions. So we can now safely cast aside yet another warrantless accusation as to the veracity of the book of Daniel. Now verse 2 explains that Darius, Daryavesh, the Mede, went about organizing his empire by putting 120 loyal governors, viceroys they're called, in charge of various nations and kingdoms and districts that formed the empire. And these 120 reported to three chiefs. No doubt something like 40 governors reporting to each one of the chiefs. And then the three chiefs reported to King Darius. Now interestingly, one of the three chiefs was Daniel. And Daniel, as this exceptional human being and administrator that he had always proved to be, outshone all the others. And he became the favorite of King Darius. Daniel was so obviously supreme in ability over the others that Darius shared with his inner circle that he was strongly considering putting Daniel in charge even over the chiefs, thus making him a sort of vice king to to Darius. Verse 4 highlights that this tremendous character and ability was present in Daniel due to an excellent spirit in him. This doesn't refer to Daniel's tireless efforts or his determined faithfulness to serve whomever occupied the throne, but rather to an endowment of God upon him. In modern church speak, we would say that the Lord had given Daniel the spiritual gift of administration. And as much as this exceptionalism shown by Daniel was appreciated by the elderly King Darius, it caused deep resentment, a lot of jealousy between the other two chiefs and many of the 120 governors. These were, after all, mostly self-serving politicians who each had their own ambitions to fulfill. Verse 6 explains... These men weren't about to have the Jewish Daniel raised above them. So they convened a meeting to try to figure out what to do about it. But they had a problem. Even they couldn't find fault with anything he did. So the only solution was to use Daniel's religion against him in order to entrap him. They said, you know what, we'll find a law in his religion. We'll use that against him. Such is the way of politicians and those who feel threatened in their positions. John 8, 1 through 6. 
But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives, and at daybreak he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The Torah teachers and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery and made her stand in the center of the group. Then they said to him, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in our Torah, Moses commanded that such a woman be stoned to death. But what do you say about it? They said this to trap him so that they might have grounds for bringing charges against him. But Yeshua bent down and began writing in the dust with his finger. There's nothing new under the sun. 